Mesdames et Messieurs, le vainqueur de la 118e édition de Paris-Roubaix, représentant l'Italie pour la formation Bahreïn Victorious, Sonny Colbrelli Welcome back to the Segmentos Podcast, everybody. I'm Kaylee Fretz. We've got a large crew here this week, and we're also going to be dropping into some on-the-ground coverage of the men's Paris-Roubaix from last weekend. If you missed it, and you shouldn't miss it, go check out the podcast that we released early Sunday morning from the very first Paris-Roubaix Femmes. I thought it was a great episode. I really enjoyed making it. And I really enjoyed that race. Today, though, we got to talk about the men's race. We've got Abby. How are you? Yep, good. Chilling. And James. Hello. It's been a while. It's been a while. And Dan Cash. Yeah, hi, Kelly. Doing great. And Ronan, how are you? I'm good. I'm re- recalibrating to right-hand drive, but always good. <laughs> We did. We, we spent a couple of weeks over there. It's enough to switch your brain around. I should say that the reason why this this podcast is a little bit late is we wanted to get this whole crew together because, uh, well, to be honest, tactical breakdowns of bike races that you're actually at are very difficult. Ronan can attest to the fact that we didn't really see a whole lot of the men's race, and so pulling in Dane and pulling in Abby, I think, will be helpful today because I can guarantee that we miss some stuff. Wait, was there was there a bike race this weekend? So today we're going to be talking about the men's Roubaix. We're going to talk about tactics and the fact that it was the first wet Roubaix since 2002. We're going to hear from Zdenek Stibar, from Simon Clark about what that was like. We're going to talk about Matty Vanderpool's somehow miraculously white shoes. It's maybe less miraculous than, than you think. Talk about uh, Johnny Moscon and some karma that may have come into play there. A couple honorable honorable mentions to talk through. Brief bit on the women's tour, which kicked off yesterday with some fantastic racing over in the UK. And then, in today's Nerd Nugget, clinchers and tubulars and tubeless and all sorts of tire stuff from Roubaix. But before any of that, Abby, what are we learning about Continental this week? Well, just yesterday, Continental announced the newest upgrade to their tire lineup, the Continental Grand Prix 5000 STR. This new take on the incredibly popular Grand Prix tire is tubeless ready, while promising to be lighter, faster, and stronger, the stronger sidewalls, that is, according to the website. One of the most exciting changes James highlighted in his article on cyclingtips.com, what a great website, about the new tire is that they're also easier to get on the rim now, which was a big problem with the previous version. No more fighting with the tire for hours to try to achieve the impossible, ride faster, more comfortably, and with increased puncture protection. Ronan's actually seen these tires in action and uh, they've won a couple races already. I've seen them and I've even touched them believe wow. it or not uh, but, but I haven't I haven't ridden on them unfortunately but yeah they've well, we first seen them I think on Ghana's TT bike at the Worlds which they won uh, we then seen uh, Dylan Van Barl riding them to second place in the road race uh, and then uh, well I don't want to give away a spoiler but they did quite well in Paris-Roubaix as well it's a it's a wide spread of uh, events to do quite well in obviously different sizes between the time trial and Roubaix, I would imagine. So clearly the takeaway here is if you run these new Continental tires, you're going to win something. Probably. Well, unless you're Dylan Van Barl, but I guess he won the silver medal. Podium. (laughs) You'll you'll be on the podium for something. It may only only be the Strava segment up your driveway, but you'll still podium on something. We will, of course. I think we're going to be talking about these tires a little bit later in the show uh, from an editorial perspective, but uh, yeah. Exciting news from Continental. And really, if you're going to do a new tire rollout, 
I'd say this one went pretty well for them. <laughs> I'd say it went all right over the last couple of weeks. Thanks to Continental for sponsoring this week's episode. Now, let's get into it. Let's hear from us a couple days ago in France, hanging out in the rain. I'm on the side of the road. Uh, we're extremely wet and extremely muddy. <laughs> huge puddles, huge puddles on the side of the road. And here comes the main peloton. So breakaway came by about a minute ago. Everybody is absolutely caked, absolutely caked in mud. Oh, that puddle, that puddle was like a foot deep. So we've got. Bahrain victorious on the front. Riders still trickling through here. The Ronin. Oh, Ronin almost just got splashed. There are crews of wheel people. The Yumbo Visma ones are right in front of us. Each of these teams has dozens of wheels and tons of crews bouncing from sector to sector to sector because there's just absolutely no way that the cars can get to their riders in time. The hope is that you have a flat, you just keep riding until you spot somebody in your own kit, which is what all the, all the helpers are wearing, and then you grab a wheel. We haven't seen anybody come through with a flat just yet. Another group coming through. We're already all split up, and we are on sector three right now. We haven't seen anybody come through a flat yet, but the riders, they look completely, they're almost like zombies already. They're caked from head to toe in, in mud. They're, they look like they're freezing. There's, you know, there's almost zero grip there. You can almost see the fear in their faces. It's, yeah, it's, it's I know it's an often overused term, but it's, it's chaos here on the ground. You've got cars coming by, you've got bikes coming by. Riders everywhere. The, the bunch is now long past. We've got the cars trying to make it through at the same time as riders here dropped. Just saw Mitch Dacker go by. Ripped shorts. Bit of a crash. This is, of course, his final Roubaix and the final race of his career, actually. And that's our cue to jump back in the car and try to go to get to the Arnberg. Rona, we've made it to the exit of the Armberg, uh, dumped the car not too far from here, and the riders are 102k, so they're about 8k out right now. Now, now if you had to guess, uh, you know, we rode the Armberg the other day in the wet, just like this. Uh, speed's probably quite similar, you think? And that they're moving forwards, <laughs> yes. Beyond that, they have no similarity to the speed we did. No, I think the, the riders are going to hit this section at, you know, as we've seen that day, it's, the TV makes it look like a flat lead in Larenberg, but it's actually a, a, a false flat downhill. Uh, and then even when you hit the first section of cobbles, uh, it, it continues downhill at an even steeper rate, uh, right until this, almost the midway point of the forest of Arnberg. So yeah, it's going to be, you know, that, that's what makes it so chaotic. The speed is going to be so high. It's wet, as we see today. It has or it isn't raining here at present, uh, which we've seen does make a, quite a difference if it's you know raining as you hit them like we did the first time. They were incredibly slippery. Ten minutes later when we did it and it wasn't raining, they were already drying out. So maybe could have been worse, but it's still going to be... Uh, a, a, you know, the, the cobbles here are just so rough, it's still going to be uh, chaos when they hit them, I think. I think they're still going to be slippery and wet when they get here too. I mean, it is... Yeah, it's it's stopped raining on us it was dumping on us about uh, 45 minutes ago but i wouldn't say drying out you know my feet are still um squidgy <laughs> some squidgy socks going on and yeah like the the biggest difference obviously as well is like while we were able to sort of somewhat pick our line you know there is you can spot sections that are worse than others and sort of divert around them a little bit when you're in the middle of this peloton, you have no idea what's coming at you. you all, the only thing you can see in front of you is the rider in front of you. And that's, if you just stop and think about that for a second, these guys are heading full gas into a cobble sector that is renowned for being incredibly difficult and dangerous, and they can't even see where they're going. 
they, you know, that that just speaks volume about the mindset that they have, and and you know the places they can put themselves. Uh, yeah, I guess you know, in, in, in search of glory, I guess. I think they're crazy. I think they're completely crazy. All right, we're gonna we're gonna wait for them to show up here. The armberg is long and straight enough that chasing group can absolutely see the two leaders out front. Oh, the faces already. But Abermatt's still up there, looking pretty good. Oh, we had a crash about. Oh, crash. Oh, crash. Oh, oh. Caused another one. That's exactly what we were talking about earlier, where you can't see what is coming in front of you. We had a rider who was sort of off to the side, off to the right-hand side, trying to get back onto, back onto the crown. And in doing so, took out three others. They are just in groups of ones and twos here. There's Guadalbanart with Stevar. Ones and twos and ones and twos to the exit of the Armberg. Shaking their hands out. Heinrich Hausler. There's no Peloton. There is not. There are riders coming through in ones and twos. There, you can see them just as soon as they come off the cobbles. They're stretching. They're grimacing their faces. They're shaking just their hands out. shaking their hands. Yeah, they're just like so relieved it's over. To the finish. All right, Ronan. We got three off the front. 5K to go. Who's your pick? Vanderpol, Cabrelli, Vermeersch. I'm going to have to go Cabrelli, I think. Seems to be playing it very smart there. Vanderpol is pulling a lot. Like, way too much. If he still wins this anyway, I'll be... Well, impressed, but also he could have done a lot less, right? Closed most of the gap up to Moscon. Cobrelli then kind of hit the gas as they went around him. And then Vanderpol just went right back to the front and has been towing him around kind of ever since. They are rotating a bit, but he's the only one taking pulls that are longer than about 10 seconds. So is he less destroyed than the others, or is he not playing this right? Um... We're about to find out, aren't we? We're about to find out, yeah. But if anybody can do it, it it would be Vanderpool. I mean, like if anybody can ride in the front for <laughs> the final 30k or whatever and still win. But it does sort of raise a question we've asked before: Is Vanderpool as tactically astute as he as he might be, or is he just able to rely on his power? I think maybe a bit of the latter. We're gonna see here. 4.2k to go. We are in the middle of the Roubaix Velodrome on the, the lovely grass. I mean, if you, yeah, if you are Vermeersch, you don't really have to pull right now, right? You've got the European champion. You have one of the best riders in the world in the group with you. You don't, oh, and there he goes. The fans of the Roubaix Velodrome like that. He just made a little move. I didn't really get anywhere. Cabrelli closed it down. 3k to go but kudos to him for giving it a shot it, it's a one-one here for him you know you we often find we get a, a surprise uh, rider on the podium and he's certainly going to achieve that podium position now which he wouldn't have been expecting this morning so he may as well throw everything he's got at this he's unlikely to beat these two riders in the sprint uh, and i guess he's just hoping to you know play them against each other that he can skip away and and they maybe just look at each other so that's what he gives it another go Fellow podcaster Zach Edwards just noted that uh, Lotto is the better of the two Belgian teams today. That's a little bit unusual. Uh, it is, but at the same time, you know, it's been such an unusual race with the weather that we've had. Uh, it has been full on from the start with that huge group go away, uh, and Vermeers was in that group, and you know, he's, he's played it played it well all day. I wonder how much as well having Gilbert on the team has helped the squad prepare for this year's race, where you know they're they're always. Uh, you know, let's not forget Lotto are, are one of the best best squads in the world here anyway. And now they've brought in someone with the experience of, of Gilbert. It, it can only but help. This has to be one of Quick Step's worst Roubaix in a while, though. <laughs> are you lining me up? <laughs> I'm lining you up a little bit, Ronan. Why, why do you think that might be? 
Well, you know, we've only caught uh, glimpses of the action all day. We're scooting between uh, cobbled sectors and that, but it looks like they've suffered from quite a few punctures, uh, and that could be a result of their tyre selection. We did ask Wilfred Peters before the start, was it a risk to go with clinchers? He was uh, uncertain as to whether it was a risk or not. He was certainly not confident in, in their selection, but yeah, they, they went with clinchers, and from what I've heard, they've had a few punctures. They're on the final sector. And yes, I do think running clinchers at a wet Paris Bay is probably a bad idea. <laughs> Sorry, specialized. <laughs> Just not not a good one there. I, th I think, yeah, had it been dry, it's a different story, but with it being so wet today, they need to run the pressure so low, then, you know, clincher just most likely was not the best option today. <laughs> All right, they are about to turn onto the velodrome. You're gonna be able to hear the fans erupt in just a moment. Pole comes on first, followed by Cabrelli, followed by Vermeersch. It's a bit tactical. He's definitely not smashing it just yet. Looking around. Still looking at each other. Half a lap to go. Vermeersch. Vermeersch has got a length. He's got a length. Cabrelli's coming back. Cabrelli's gonna take it, and he does. Good finish. Ooh. Did Vanderpool pass him for second? I couldn't nope. actually tell from here. Vanderpool gets third, so there we go. That answers our question about whether he was doing too much over the last 30K. Moscon is coming around to finish in fourth. Cobrelli has just collapsed on the ground. He can't believe it. He was like, he just literally just fell down the grass, started thumping the grass. I think he just, yeah, can't believe what's just happened. In 2018, Rafa published the roadmap following a two-year research project that investigated how cycling could be made more exciting and more valuable. The recommendations in the roadmap guide all of Rafa's investments and have led to the launch of the Rafa Foundation focused on the grassroots of the sport founded in 2019 with the mission of building a better future for cycling and cyclists the rafa foundation funds organizations around the world committed to inspiring empowering and supporting the next generation of riders and racers the rafa foundation invests 1.5 million dollars a year into grassroots organizations rafa recently announced their 2021 rafa foundation grantees which include black girls do bike Grow Cycling Foundation, Bayer National Dev Team, and USA Cycling. Congrats to all those organizations. For more info, visit rafa.cc. All right. As you just heard from the chaos of the center field at the Roubaix Velodrome, Sonny Cabrelli won the men's Paris-Roubaix. It was a three-up sprint. I love a good three-up sprint in on the on the velodrome, on the banking at Roubaix. Uh, just ahead of Vermeersch, who came out of kind of nowhere. And, of course, Matthew Vanderpoel uh, with his magical white shoes. We'll get into that in a little bit. Dane, talk through a little bit of the tactics here. Uh, well, I think the first thing that defined it was the weather. I mean, you have to take that into account. And not just the weather, I guess the conditions on the road, regardless of what was going on in the atmosphere, because the rain in the morning, even if it was clearing up by the afternoon, made for uh, quite muddy roads, uh, which meant a couple of things. It, it meant that the, uh, the the breakaway, the, the riders who were in the breakaway, I think posed a little bit more of a threat, um, whether or not they were eventually caught or not. Those riders, many of them were still up there. Um, and it just kind of changed the way that I, I feel like this race didn't have there, there wasn't as much of a single moment where you had all of the big favorites uh, looking at each other and waiting for that big attack to come and then the big attack happening it, it didn't really go down like that like it often does um, instead you had Johnny Moscone getting away and that was 
basically the defining moment of most of the race, I think. Yeah, I mean, we were we were standing at the end of the Arnberg, and you heard a bit of this a couple minutes ago, but, you know, we're at the end of the Arnberg, and generally, in the last five, six, seven years, all the dry Roubaix's, you get a pretty large group that comes into the Arnberg, right? You're, you're about 95K to go at the entrance of that, and, you know, you have a, you have a group of 100-plus riders that comes into the Arnberg together, and then it comes out the other side, and it's still basically together right maybe there's been a couple crashes maybe there's a couple riders that dropped off the back but it's still basically together and what actually tears the race apart is sort of the combination of the armberg into this section that often has a crosswind and then into wallers and into hornang sort of back to back to back that sort of triplet often will sort of split the split the race up quite dramatically this year we're standing at the end of the armberg and it was I, I think the largest group that i saw come across the end of the armberg was maybe three three riders Right, three riders. I'm talking like very, very, very small groups already at that point, and it definitely sort of coalesced a bit after that as they as they got off the cobbles and things like that. But it, it was fundamentally a completely different race because of the weather. The early cobble sectors, the ones, the stuff before the Armberg, was a was much more effective at splitting the race up, making it a pure race of attrition. Uh, like you said, Dane, I think that being in the early move today. I think everybody on the start line knew that the early move today could win the bike race. And it almost did, right? Came in second. I mean, there were so many big names in that group that yeah. went early in or early, quote unquote, the the it's not even a break. Is it a breakaway when it's 31 riders? There were so many big names and favorites in that group, and they still didn't even make it to the end. Um, a lot of them, I think it was kind of telling. And I don't know if that was so much a selection of riders that went as riders that were in the right place at the right time when there was crosswinds. Yeah, and it was actually, I, I think it was, was it Matteo Jorgensen that kind of set that off? Again, we were in the car trying to watch this on a on a little tiny, you know, iPhone screen, but I believe he might have been, or at least he was very well placed at that particular moment. You know, it was, it was, it was a matter of sort of who was in that front group when some crosswinds hit. It was really windy, I should say. Not only was it raining, hard it was quite breezy particularly in the first 150k it did kind of calm down a little bit later in the day it was like 80 kilometer kilometer an hour winds overnight i think was the peak in compiègne now those had settled a little bit by the time the race actually set off but yeah it was a nasty first two hours and i think that those first two hours really set they, they determined the entire rest of the race which is not something that's normal for roubaix just while we're on the weather as well, I, I've spent my whole uh, bike riding life hoping for a wet Roubaix and being disappointed every year when it didn't happen. And can I just say now, having witnessed one, and, and especially having been on the ground for it, I'm never looking for another one again, to be honest. And that it was just hectical copyright, Ruth Wonder. Um, <laughs> it's probably the best way to describe it. And, you know, a, a lot of, I've never heard of a, a race before where so many riders beforehand were speaking of just how fearful they were going into the race you know these are the best riders in the world uh, in both the men's and the women's races actually saying they were afraid on the start line uh, and that was you know afraid for their for their safety and, and certainly I was afraid um, watching as well because it, it is just you know the, there is no traction on the cobbles and if you come down you're going down hard yeah, I mean, Ronan, we, we rode them, right? We rode the Arnberg in the wet. Uh, there's a great video up there if you want to hear some, some Ronan squeals uh, in the first 50, 50 meters or so of, of the Arnberg. It's, it's, it's genuinely terrifying. And I think, yeah, it, it's watching on television at home as a fan, it makes for a pretty, pretty amazing spectacle. But it's hard not to empathize with the riders more, I think, when you have to stare them in the eyes at the start and you can kind of see that fear in them. Because it is genuinely terrifying. I, I, I can't actually imagine coming onto the Armberg in a group in those conditions. And, and I think that that's a big part of the reason why it's split up too, right? The second you hit the first cobble sector, and again, most of those, you know, Troisville and Quivy and those, normally those don't do that much damage. But guys were just absolutely pinning it over those first ones because nobody wanted to be near anybody else. And it determined sort of the, the the tactics of the entire day. It was it was, it's it's genuinely scary. And I, you know, Ronan, I wouldn't say that I will never hope for another wet Roubaix, but I, I I'm fine with them remaining somewhat scarce. You know, I, I think that 
a series of those. Uh, I think a series of those, and you might have riders that just refuse to come at some point. I mean, it's 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 like it's genuinely terrifying to hit that stuff. That said, that said, some of them love it. Uh, Ronan, we we I can't remember if we mentioned this on the podcast of the weekend or not, but when the day that we went and rode the Armberg, we also watched Heinrich Hausler, who came in tenth, like just sneaky tenth. He's just up there all the time. We watched him ride onto the cobblestones at about the same speed we hit them with his phone in his hand taking video, right? One-handed, phone in his hand, straight onto the cobblestones, didn't care at all, right? So some of them love it. And if you're a rider like that, I mean, there's, 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 a, there's a reason why, you know, Hausler's not a name that we've heard in the headlines a whole lot over the last couple of years. He's definitely not the rider he once was, but just from a skill set perspective, that's that's what put him in tenth over the weekend, right? That's what it was. The, the the fact that he was so confident he could ride on the Arberg in the wet with a with a phone in his hand. That I mean, first of all, that's just stunning to me. And second of all, that's that that put him in tenth place at Perry Bay. I mean, it it turns out that there are good reasons why these people, the men and the women, are paid to ride bikes. <laughs> Go figure. They might they at. might be better at it than we are, but <laughs> anyway, I mean, like what back to what you were saying earlier though. I mean, I I think I've mentioned this multiple times in the past, but the only reason why we have an event like Paris Roubaix is because it has so much history behind it. Can you imagine if there was nothing like Roubaix or or I guess even or Flanders for that matter, or just like any of the cobbled classics? And can you imagine if someone tried to introduce an event like Perry Roubaix today without any of sort of history? Forget it. Like it'd be insane. Well, like, if you were to tell, technically I mean, that did happen. Well, okay, yes, you are <laughs> you are correct. You are correct. But but would they have wanted to do that if there hadn't already been a men's edition that was that had 125 years behind it? No. I mean, I think the this Perry Roubaix definitely scared a lot of women who didn't didn't realize how dangerous it would be maybe before they started the race. I mean, Anamique wanted to do it because she wanted to be part of history and and she's going to be laid up in bed for the next... Actually, she, she walked uh, yesterday, I believe, but she is very, very injured now. So, yeah, it was... It definitely, for the first ever women's Paris-Roubaix, for it to be so wet. Uh, I think it would have opened a lot of eyes. Um, well, they, and they had a comparatively dry day, honestly. Yeah. Like the, the issue for the women's peloton was actually just it rained overnight, and there were pet puddles on on the side of of all of the sectors, and the sectors themselves were actually quite dry until all the cars drove over and splashed all of the water onto the cobblestones. <laughs> <laughs> so, if, if they had just not put any cars in front of the women's peloton, they would have had a dry basically dry Perry Roubaix like maybe a couple little little wet sections but they they kind of uh it's not too far off of having you know gone through and and sprayed water on them because it's basically what happened they they it was it was artificial uh wet Perry Roubaix for the women's belt on and I'm sure that a, a lot of them actually would have hoped for something a bit different there well the men was they there was no hope there was no hope for them <laughs> No, no hope for the man after it dumped rain like for twelve hours beforehand and through the entire start and yeah. Anyway, let let's talk to let's let's talk kind of tactics in the finale here. So, you know, we've got Moss gone off the front, right? And he, he he had they pulled that gap out to what a minute and a half, minute thirty five, something like that. It was pretty pretty solid move. And on a day like that with such a small group behind. Chasing is really, really hard. We talked about this in the po- podcast over the weekend. You just It's really hard to put together a chase because there's so little time in between the cobbled sectors, and you can't you can't roll turns on cobbles, right? That that doesn't work. And so that move looked pretty solid until, until uh, the collective will of bicycle Twitter <laughs> wish, <laughs> appeared to wish a flat upon Johnny Moscon, who... Let's let's remember, um, you know, uh, chuck some racist remarks at Kevin Reza, punched Ellie Gisbert, uh allegedly crashed Reichen- Sebastian Reichenbach, was disqualified from the World Championships. Is sort of a known, um, not great human being, 
uh, not particularly beloved, uh, is going to Astana, by the way, next year. Uh, the collab we've been waiting for, the Moscon Astana collab. Anyway, but he's off the front. He's got a minute and a half. But that flat took that down to, what, 25 seconds or so? And interestingly, the that spare bike uh, served to actually slow him down even more because that the tires on it were clearly pumped up higher than on his A bike. You could see that the second he got on the second bike, his rear wheel started bouncing all over the place. He started kind of fishtailing all over the place. That, that was sort of the end of his day, really. Uh, you know, he was caught then from behind by a charging Matthew Vanderpoel. Which kind of brings up my next tactical question for, for you all, which is Vanderpool did a lot of work in the last 50, 60, 70K of this race and then finished third out of a group of three in the velodrome. D did he did he kind of throw this one away or did he have to do that, do we think? I feel like he... To me, it was like he didn't adapt to the new situation once Moscone went from... I think going on to win the I think Moscon probably was going to win the race. And then he went, when he went from doing that to not winning the race and, and getting caught and passed, I think the, cha the situation changed pretty dramatically. It seemed like Vanderpool still wanted to push the pace because maybe he was concerned about being caught by the group behind. I mean, Wat van Aert was, was behind him, although pretty far back. Uh, I think it was pretty clear that he didn't need to do that. I think within the last 30K, 20, 25K, they, they weren't getting caught. Uh, I, I, I'm... I don't really think that was going to happen, whether a Vanderpool does all of the work or a third of the work. And yet he just hit the front and just kept hammering. And it's, it's not like he did the only turns from 25K to go until the finish, but he was there way too much. He was there way more than, uh, I think, way more than everybody else. And he continued to be there into the last 10K, the last 5K, at which point it was really clear he didn't need to do that anymore. I mean, maybe from 25K, you could say, okay, well, there's still a chance, but... There was no way they were getting caught with 10K or 5K to go. And he ha he let out onto the velodrome, which to me, that's... I mean, I guess all three of them are Paris-Roubaix rookies. Uh, but that is the kind of rookie mistake that I would not expect Matthew Vanderpool to make in any race, regardless of whether he's written it before or not, uh, to have been the one just dragging everybody into the into that last you know couple of kilometers. I was really surprised to see him there. So they caught Moscon on car for Labra, uh, which is a, a really nasty, it's a five-star segment. It's got a couple corners in it, particularly there's, there's sort of like this chicane thing early on. They caught him shortly after that, and then they turn actually into a headwind. And to me, it felt like a missed opportunity for Vanderpool there. That was that was his last shot to get rid of Colbrelli, right? Because on a normal day, and this is exactly what ended up happening, Colbrelli's probably a better sprinter, right? What was interesting to me was when they caught Moscon, it was actually Cabrelli that was the only one to put in a bit of a move right there. He came around the left-hand side, he punched it a little bit, you know, opened up a bike length or two, but then was quickly closed down. That told me, when I was sitting there watching it, that told me that he was going to win this bike race, right? If he had the legs to punch it on car four, two-thirds of the way car through car four, which is a long, nasty segment, and he's the best sprinter in that trio, that to me said, okay, well, you know, he's still feeling good. He's not totally cracked. He's probably going to win this thing. And I feel like if Vanderpoel had been thinking clearly in that moment, he would have had the same realization, which is that Cabrelli's been sitting on my wheel for 50K, you know, taking nominal pulls here and there, but effectively just sitting there. He was, he was played it really, really, really smart. I need to try to make him do some work over this last, you know, was it 15, 20K in from car four to at least give myself a chance. And the fact that he didn't do that, yeah, it felt like a mistake to me from Vanderpool. And I think that, you know, Ronan, I think you might have said this in the, in the, when we were sitting in the infield at the finish there, you know, is a rider like Vanderpool because he's so strong, because he often wins just, you know, as a blunt force object, right? Is he missing a little bit of that, that tactical nuance, perhaps? Uh, or was he just, you know, six hours into a very, very hard bike race and, and not really thinking clearly? I think we should, you know, just state again that that is, you know, it, it was it was brilliant on Colbrelli's behalf. That's uh, in the course of three weeks, he has played both Evenepoel and Vanderpool uh, excellently in the finale of two big, big races, European Championships in Paris Bay, and he has won both. Uh, but I certainly also agree that Vanderpool. 
Yeah, uh, made a few tactical errors here. I think he, you know, at, at one point he, he did really have to force the, the pace because it did look like Moscon was, was riding away with it. But he, you know, he sort of failed to realise the point where if he rode for the rode wholeheartedly for the win like he did, he was going to lose. Uh, and he needed, to, he, he, he should have, or let me say that again, he perhaps should have thought, you know, if I ride like this, I'm going to end up third at best uh, and if Moscon stays away I'm going to end up second or third at best either way I don't win and I need to sort of uh, look look at my breakaway companions here and try to try to put some of the onus on onto them and he sort of he sort of from what I've seen of it failed to make that calculation and then they end up he, he paid for it on on the velodrome you know when we seen the three riders sprint it was it was almost a slow motion sprint the, the three of them were completely empty Vermeers actually got the initial jump and, and looked like he was just about to hold on I think had the finishing line been halfway down the back straight of the track he probably would have won prior to Bay. Uh, ultimately Colbrelli Colbrelli did but uh, for me yeah uh, another huge question mark in, in terms of Vanderpool's uh, tactical um ability I guess he did play it perfectly right uh, you know I think that I think that people were giving him some stick for for not pulling through a couple times for not sort of sharing the workload but why would just you come in there right? like, Vanderpool is going to yeah, yeah like why, if, if Vanderpool is going to do it and is going to keep the pace high you know the Vanderpool should have played a game of chicken there right he should have said you guys got to help me or or Moscon's coming back and then one of you isn't get you know somebody somebody isn't getting a podium spot right that should be enough particularly when you've got a group of three up the road everybody in that group is guaranteed a podium spot if you just roll turns and just keep riding right and every single one of them was in their first pair of bay and in particular for florian vermish like third place it was a, is a stunning success for him right you'd think that you know there'd be a little bit of a discussion and basically just say listen guys if we just roll we all get podium places but Vanderpool never never forced that issue he never he never just sort of like sat up and said you guys want to go slow then we'll go slow and 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 Moscow will catch us and maybe Walt Van Arbor will catch us and you know everyone back there will catch us and I think that was a missed opportunity for him to potentially win this race now I do think that Vanderpool is going to win Roubaix at some point and I think that a couple years from now you know, if we get another wet one three, four years from now, he proved that his handling skills on Sunday were a step above almost everybody else that, that he was with. He just looked better on all those cobble sectors. He also looked stronger. I mean, he looked he, like he was going twice as fast as everybody else at, at the exit of the Arenberg. It was super, super impressive. Yeah, I, was so just... I think he wins one of these eventually anyway, but an opportunity lost in my mind. I was just going to say that I, I dare say that, yes, I do believe that he is going to win one at some point, and maybe more specifically, I think it's safe to say that he's probably not going to make that mistake again. It's it's Vanderpool's style, though. Like, yeah, that's that's how he rides. He rides super aggressive and fast. And if you think about like that, that stunning Amstel Gold victory, right, where he pulled a group of, what was it, like eight riders up through into the fi- into the finale and then won the sprint anyway like he's been able to do things like that in the past i i just don't think he can truly count on that he, right i also well it, it's like you were saying earlier i mean he has been able to win and have all these successes just in basically just like full sledgehammer mode but you know that obviously gets you it, it obviously has what earned, has earned him a lot of these wins but if you're able to combine that with some savvier tactics, then that gets you more wins, doesn't it? But up it? until this point, he hasn't Correct. needed the savvier tactics. And we well, also right. have to keep in mind that he was just injured. I, I, so I, I think two things. I think one, I think the season was a week or two too long for, for Wapenart. I think that he just, he was fading hard, right? I think that otherwise he would have been a much bigger factor in this race. And I think it was actually a week too short for Vanderpool, right? Because he's coming back from this injury. He was not particularly impressive at Worlds, and then a week later is really impressive at Roubaix. I think if this if this race is a week later, I think Vanderpool potentially wins. Wins, right? It's all about you know timing, timing that fitness, and some of it if it's due to fatigue like Van Aert or or you know just an injury that he had to re- return from for for Vanderpool. You can't do anything about that. But I do. I, I think that for both of those riders. 
who let's be honest they kind of come in as the hot favorite in almost anything almost any race like this i think for both of them they were just a, a little bit off on the timing from a timing perspective but anyway let's get back to cabrelli here so i mean like i said played it the smartest knew his skill set knew what he could do and and played everyone around him perfectly I think Cobrelli is a really interesting case because he's been winning second and third tier races for a long time. Uh, he's he's you know he spent a long time on Bardiani, so he wasn't getting all of the World Tour invites, but he was winning a lot of Italian one days, and and then more recently he started to win stages. He started to actually win World Tour races. Uh, it had been a long time actually he'd gone without really doing much at the World Tour level. He he was just somebody that. People who followed the sport and who would watch those smaller races, they, they kind of knew his talent. But you wouldn't maybe know so much about him if you only watched the monuments, if you only watched the Grand Tours, because he really wasn't doing much in those races and in, in that caliber of event um, for, for quite some time. He, he kind of already arrived as this good rider, but it took a while. Uh, and then this year, thing you know something kind of changed. He started winning big races. He won stages at, at uh, Romandie and the Dauphiné, and then uh, he won the Italian uh, national championship. And then more recently, just like this past few weeks, he's been, he's really been on another level. He won a, the stage in the overall at the Benelux tour. And he won obviously the Euro championships, uh, Memorial Marco Pantani. So he's, he found something this year. He kind of reached that next level. Where he's able actually to win these, the big races, the races that people see and they say, okay, this guy, he can win something like a pair Roubaix. And yet all of that said, his skill set has always been uh, I can make it over, you know, harder climbs and then sprint. And I, I mean, I don't, I don't know if anybody told him, but there's no climbs at Paris-Roubaix. Uh, so the fact that he was able to do this race, I mean, he was, he was talked about heavily ahead of Worlds. I mean, he was one of the riders that a lot of people thought was going to win Worlds. He's one of the top 10 favorites for that race. He gave Italy a, a lot of reason to be optimistic. But it was the, the pancake flat, extremely hard bike handling challenge race that he ends up winning and I, I'm really impressed by that and, and I think he yeah he really kind of showed just how good he is and and uh, how complete of a rider he is because yeah we talked about a little while ago how he was sort of seen as the fastest sprinter in that group but Matt Heyman beat Tom Bonin on the velodrome like it, being a great sprinter doesn't necessarily guarantee you a win in a sprint at Paris-Roubaix because everything is so different after this length and after you've ridden on the cobbles so long so it takes more than just being a fast sprinter to win at Roubaix in a sprint, and he did it. He managed to, to pull it off, and I think uh, hats off to, to Colbrelli for just uh, being such a complete rider on the day. Just needed that Bahrain bump. Uh, I suppose for me, it, it didn't really surprise me that Colbrelli ended up taking the win, given you know exactly what we just spoke about, about Vanderpool. But what surprised me was that he was there in the final selection of let's say two riders because Vermeer sort of came back from the front while the other Vanderpool and Colbrelli came from behind and everybody else and everybody else in the race had been eliminated effectively in a, in a war of attrition and Colbrelli was one of the last two standing as the strongest riders on the day um, and if you think back again to his European Championships ones, or when two weeks ago that was on a very hilly course I think if I remember right 4,000 metres of climbing maybe more and again he was the last rider standing behind the Venipole, uh on on that kind of course, and you know they're they're two very very different types of races as you just explained there, Dane. Um, and he was you know he he, he survived um, as as one of the strongest riders in, in both those races and and won the sprint in both. Super impressive. Let's uh let's hear from a couple riders, and we did get to snag a couple couple people. So in a really brief chat with Simon Clark, uh, ended up sort of letting him go faster than I intended to because uh, it sounded like he broke his wrist and was just not really in the mood to chat so much. So thank you, Simon, for coming over at all. Uh, we'll hear from him in a second and from Zdenek Stibar, who has been well, he's been at the front of Rebe for a very long time. He said he didn't have the legs, uh, but I just you know wanted to ask him what, what, a, what a wet Rebe was like. So let's hear from those two. How are you, man? Uh, broken. <laughs> Tell me how it feels. Let Roubaix. Ah, I was so scared coming into it today. Obviously, it's not a race I normally do. But as soon as we hit the first sector, I just, just like Strada Bianca, I felt at home. And 
I was just on it. I was in the front the whole time. And then uh, I was in the front, you know, 10 or 15 coming into the forest. And uh, I got a front puncture and had a really big crash. And I've actually got a broken wrist. And uh, yeah, from then on, I just, uh, it was just survival to the finish, unfortunately. You rode then another 95K on bubbles with a broken wrist. I mean, what makes you do that? I mean, look at us. <laughs> Who wouldn't? I've done one before, and uh, but I didn't finish. Hence why I finished even with a broken wrist today. Thanks, man. It was just a really, really hard race. Of course, I, I think, uh, I think uh, you can imagine, or probably you can. But uh, yeah, it was really hard. Uh, you know, yeah, in the beginning, yes. Uh, I think it was, it was spectacular. It was uh, something special. But uh, yeah, the last 50 kilometers was uh, so hard. It was really suffering. It's, uh, it's just you, you just feel in the body that. Uh, yeah, that they are just getting more and more empty, and uh, yeah, then uh, yeah, then you are suffering uh, double so hard. Uh, you know, Roubaix is always really tough, and you know, if you have uh, good legs, then uh, you of course don't suffer that hard. But uh, it all depends of the of the legs and uh, the condition you have, and uh, yeah, it's just uh, it's just super hard and on those conditions. So, but uh, still, on I I think tomorrow we will uh, all think like, okay, it was some fun. Now uh, I don't want to think about cobblestones. <laughs> Abby, before we get into our nerd nugget for the day, which is another Roubaix-based nerd nugget, what's going on over the women's tour? Uh, first and foremost, a bunch of the a bunch of the women that raced Roubaix on Saturday flew straight to the UK for this thing. There's a great photo of a bunch of I think it was the Yumbo Visma women with their hands in the air, sort of like waving at the start and just completely covered in like tape and bandages and, and all sorts of, it looks rough. It looks rough going straight from Roubaix to the women's store. How's it going over there? Yeah, there's a, there was a lot of women who had, had the forced turnaround from Roubaix to the women's store, luckily just to jump across the uh, canal channel. I don't know, whatever the Brits refer to it as. But um, there's definitely, uh, it's definitely clear that the current situation with the World Tour races back-to-back -back while and the way that the teams are formed at the moment um, is not going to work if the calendar continues to expand. Um, a handful of the World Tour teams on the start line are already... But like they lined up for the race with four riders. Canyon Stream only had four riders on the start. A bunch of them have already been like are already out of the race. We lost Elisa Longborghini on stage one just because the turnaround was too quick and the effort on Saturday was too much to then race again on Monday after a travel day. Uh, so Trek is down to only four after just one stage. Uh, Live Racing also lost two on stage one. So just like that big that quick of a turnaround between world tour races while teams are only you know fielding rosters of 12 um after a really long season kind of opens up the question that we've been talking about on freewheeling a lot this year about what this what the new calendar next year and all the new races means for world tour teams um and how much those budgets are going to have to rise with the increasing salary demands but also the fact that teams just really need more riders at this point um and that's evident at the world at the women's tour this week but yeah the women's tour is usually one of the freewheeling podcast favorite races of the year we love this race uh lauren and i have both participated in it and it's really well done the the courses are super fun the racing in the UK is just really fast, really challenging. The tarmac is like sticky, so it's actually like really hard to pedal a bike. So it adds this whole like really horrifying element to racing over there. Um, but this year, the course, all the courses are relatively flat. Today was kind of the hilliest day and it ended in a break of 10, won by uh, Amy Peters. What's really unfortunate is that there there is no live coverage. Um, the women's tour had promised in February that they would have live coverage for the first time ever this year, 
but they announced just two weeks ago, I think, uh, really, really recently that something fell through and they were unable to have live coverage. Um, reminder that any world to a race is required to have at least 45 minutes of live coverage. So we talked about it yesterday on freewheeling, um, but would not be surprised to see their world tour license pulled for next year. I mean, that's what happened to the Giro Rosa. Um, but yeah, it's just a, is really a bummer. Uh, I tried to read the race report today and I'm going off of like very, very sparse tweets from the UCI's Twitter, um, on what the heck happened in the race. And, um, when they finally did release the highlights package yesterday, it was like 20 minutes long. So just really disappointing from a race that kind of when it began kind of set the bar for what women's professional racing should be and has really failed to grow with the changing times over the years and I mean at this point if you're a world tour race and you don't have live coverage there's no excuse anymore I mean did the sponsor pull out or something do we know what happened they did lose their sponsor after 2019 they used to be the oboe energy women's tour and then they went through the pandemic and struggled a lot. Um, they didn't get a new sponsor. Now they're the AJ Bell Women's Tour, so they did find a new sponsor, but they've definitely lost a lot of money. They used to have the same prize money as the Men's Tour of Britain. Um, so that was kind of, you could say, okay, they don't have live coverage, but they have this incredible prize purse. And so there were ways to kind of try to navigate around them not having live coverage in the past it wasn't a requirement in 2019 um so there was kind of like this weird or it wasn't yet a requirement or it was just newly a requirement so they kind of worked their way around it and so did a couple of other races but you know they it's it's tricky right because clearly they've lost a lot of money this year they don't have the same prize money they couldn't have the live coverage. Heck, I'm sure that they really wanted to have the live coverage. Their races are incredible. And it, does the race actually happen if no one gets to watch it? I mean, no, uh, I don't know. It's hard to say. Like, but um, but I, I, I personally, like this is my personal opinion and, and I'm sorry if I piss people off. I don't really understand why they didn't just cancel it for 2021 um, and just focus solely on 2022 and take that budget and take what they had and try to work into 2022 the actual you know race that they wanted to hold because now what's happening is they've smashed it into the end of the year teams are exhausted riders are exhausted heck i'm exhausted and they're they've got like 80 girls on the start line today <laughs> 80 at a world tour stage race one of the very very few world tour stage races we have um, and a six day stage race, I might add, like it's not the four day races that we get in Spain. So it's, it's this really weird situation that, um, kind of just leaves a bad taste in my mouth. Yeah. It feels like there's just so much potential, right? And, and the people behind it, clearly they genuinely do care, which is, we can't always say that about every, uh, women's race, I would say, which, which means that there's a ton of potential it means that they really want to do it right but it's just yeah i mean the the economics is clearly still really really difficult and well the pandemic doesn't help so i guess fingers crossed for for better next year and keep an eye on freewheeling and you guys will update update everybody on how it goes this week it's just it's sort of an unfortunate situation all around yeah i mean next year they're back in their usual june slot and hopefully with the new sponsor there's good news down the pipeline, but um, right now it's just hard to focus on the good racing when there's a lot of controversial stuff around the race. Well, we'll keep you all updated on if anything changes there. Let's get into today's nerd nugget. I want to start off with very, something very short here. Uh, this is very exciting news for, for our American listeners out there. Uh, United has dropped bicycle baggage fees. Now, 
did I read this correctly that they basically you just pay like an oversized baggage fee, so it's actually, it's not still not free, or is it or is it free free? It's basically just, it, uh, from what I can tell, from what I can tell on on the United uh, United's baggage policy, bikes now qualify just as another piece of luggage. Um, they are not. Um, United explicitly says that there is not an oversized fee applied to it. There is an additional fee if it's overweight, however. Right. Mm. So this is huge news, obviously, for anybody in the U.S. in particular, uh, since that where you, that's where United generally operates, who want who wants to travel with a bicycle. Because uh, that's been, was it, was it 150 bucks? I, I've been charged I as 200. high as like two, yeah, 225. Sort of depends on the mood of the gate checker person. Uh, yeah, so huge news. Makes it way, way, way easier to travel with a bike. Granted, you could still get dinged with oversize or overweight, I would imagine. No, not oversized. Uh, They're not dinging you for oversize, which I thought which I found amazing. But they but they will ding you if it's overweight. So, so if you have an oversized bag, say it's a bike, is what you're saying. Yes. How the table's I'll turn. let you know if this applies <laughs> to international tomorrow. Because I'm flying United with a bike. It tomorrow. should. I mean, I've spent ten years lying to, to check-in people about bicycles <laughs> just straight up lying to their faces because that's what they deserve for this stupid policy so i'm very excited about this i'm massively excited about this it means yeah it's it's just a, it's huge news for anybody who's flying around i'm, fl uh, I'm from the states in particular i'm flying with a bike tomorrow on united in fact that's a little side note there what we actually want to talk about is roubaix tires uh, Ronan, we kind of touched on this in this segment earlier from the Velodrome, but uh, we said, I believe, that we believe that, that the Koenig Quickstep had started on clinchers for the most part, uh, but we saw at the finish line quite a few of them had switched to tubulars. Now, after the race, after we recorded that segment, you went and ran around the pits, uh, ran around the buses that are parked around the corner from the Velodrome. What did you see? What, 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 were, what were teams actually riding and I think most interestingly, what were the specialized teams actually riding? Because they were the ones kind of shouting about running clinchers in Roubaix, which on its face seems like dumb, the world's worst idea. So what happened? Uh, yeah, myself and Zach Edwards from Nerd Alert Podcast, we took a, a tour around the team buses immediately after the, the finish. Well, as soon as we could get out of the velodrome, they decided to lock us in there for, for longer than they really should have. But as soon as we got out, we got around the, the buses. And despite all despite all the Dukani Quick Step riders starting on clinchers, which I can confirm because I, I literally seen them right away from the bus to the start line, uh, they all started on clincher tires. The Hell and North version of Specialized Turbo Cottons. Um, at the finish, though, it was a completely different story in that many of them had suffered quite a few punctures throughout the race. Um, we mentioned that in the segment earlier, but I can and think I'm right in saying that Eve Lampard punctured three times uh, in the race and still went on to finish fifth, which is incredible. Um, as Casper Asgreen and Zednik Debar punctured twice each. Uh, and both finished on tube their spare wheels and Florian Seneschal also punctured and apparently the team car actually missed him, drove past him so he didn't even get a spare wheel um, but yeah it was a, it was a in terms of results a disastrous Paris Bay for the Quick Quickstep and I think they will be uh, putting a lot of that uh, down to the, the tyre selection that they made for the race uh, I asked Wilfred Peters before the start I, you know, I, I basically just asked him straight out, is it a risk to run clinchers in Paris Bay? He was a lot less than confident in the selection that they'd made, <laughs> but basically just says we've we've made the selection now, we, we may get on with it. Uh, and I think understandably, he looked a lot less approachable after the finish. I didn't quite manage to catch him. I did speak to one of the other directors who said, uh, although he wouldn't speak on the record, I, he did tell me that they would have to investigate what the problem was. Was it tire selection? Was it wheel selection? What the issue was, he didn't really know, but he did say, we're going to have to investigate this. Um, so then, myself and Zach hot-footed across to Bora, and although the Bora riders didn't get up in the results either, um, they, they did all start on tubulars and did all finish on tubulars. I'm going to take a wild guess here and say that I mean, I know that they have to do a big investigation and figure out what went wrong and everything. 
but my amateur assumption here is going to be that the problem was that they had tubes in their tires. <laughs> I, I, I would concur. <laughs> I just can't. How does this get through? Like a, a team that usually knows what it's doing, and you know, Specialized has this whole S racing crew over there that like makes sure that all their Specialized teams have the best possible equipment that they can that they can get their hands on. You know, we've talked about sort of the strangeness around their their new wheels and the fact that they look like tubeless wheels, but they're technically not tubeless wheels, and something clearly went a little bit sideways there. Uh, all of these things point them toward then running clinchers at Paris-Roubaix, which I just don't I don't know how you could ever think that was a good idea. I mean, granted, if it was totally dry and you're running, you know, ten to fifteen, maybe more psi higher than they were running on Sunday. Maybe that's a totally different thing. But like, we knew it was gonna rain, or we at least knew that there was a possibility of rain. A week out, they could have made a last minute change. They could have figured that out. They, they clearly had enough tubulars laying around because they, they, they all finished on them, right? They just didn't start on them. You think that that, that, would, have been, that would have been done. So, seems like a miss here. Uh, and I imagine one that they will not be making again. You have to wonder, you know, we talk about this sort of thing all the time. Uh, viewers and readers always speculate about this thing, this sort of thing a lot. But you do have to wonder how much pressure was put on the team by Specialized to run clinchers with tubes. Just because the narrative for so much of the season has been that they've had so much success with that combination. Um, and, and we should remind people that Specialized does not have a new tubular wheel uh, in or, sorry, Roval does not have a new tubular wheel in the lineup right now. Anything that they were that so all the wheels that they were running in Roubaix were old wheels, and that's not a great marketing story for them, right? Yeah, I mean, I think it's more than the tires. Like, the, you know, I, I don't think that they're doing it to try to sell hell of the North Turbo Cottons. I think it's those wheels, right? Like, they 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 are really invested in marketing those the super wide repeat wheels, and you can't run those with anything other than a clincher setup at the moment. Uh, and I think so they're kind of between a rock and a hard place there. They, they either run, they either admit that these wheels that they've got are not well suited, which they should have just done. Let's be honest. Like you can't run clinchers at, at a wet Roubaix. You just can't. That's a, that seems like a very obvious thing to me. So they should have just admitted that and say, okay, well we got to run these old wheels then. It's not that long ago that teams would just chuck their normal wheels out entirely and just run, you know, Ambrosias with with 28 or 32 spokes. Like, I think that the average consumer understands that the equipment needed for Roubaix is not necessarily the equipment that that is needed elsewhere. And and so you know, it's not like it's a massive marketing ding to just say, yeah, we had to run the tubulars that we used to that yeah, we used to run. I I agree, and I think people are so accustomed to the idea that Roubaix is so, so far removed from the sorts of conditions that any normal person would be riding in day to day, that it's really not considered a big deal if a, a sponsor or team or whatever, ha again, like you said, has to admit and just put it right out there. It's like, nope, we're not running sponsor correct stuff today. It's Roubaix. Yeah. Although, Ron and I, we talked about this when we were on the infield, but uh, most of the bikes that were raced at Roubaix and the tire setups that were raced at Roubaix, particularly all the sort of like 32 mil tubeless kind of stuff, is actually what most of us should probably be running. <laughs> so, kind of in a weird, a weird twist of fate there, that the Roubaix has come back around and is now essentially uh, a per pretty good match for the average amateur, which I kind of like. Well, there you have it. So, uh, Ronan did the, did the digging on the, on the tires. We saw lots of those Conti, new Conti GP5000 tubeless options in what, 30 and 32, I think for the most part. We saw lots of tubulars still, and we saw clinchers on a team that had a not, so, not such a good day. Last little bit here, the story of Matthew Vanderpool's magical white shoes. Uh, there is a piece up on cyclingtips.com right now, written by our favorite Ian Trellor. Uh, who did some science, figured out, <laughs> basically went and found some rubber shoe covers and dunked them in a puddle. Uh, it's a great piece. Go check it out. But it, this this was has been sort of like floating around the internet over the last uh, 48 hours or so, which is how did Matthew Vanderpool's shoes stay so white? James? 
Well, it is kind of funny that this this question was buzzing around the internet so much, um, because Abby and I were talking about this before before the episode uh, before we started recording, and the answer seemed pretty clear that I mean he was just running like rubberized shoe covers like a lot of people have like like that, that have been out in the world for a while and actually uh just noticed on the written article on cycling tips someone has been able to identify the exact ones that they are they are uh shoe covers from aero cycling gear uh, which i believe is a dutch company i think they have like kind of like a textile top and a rubberized bottom and uh in that sort of situation it's really not that unusual to have something like that where like the mud and the water kind of sloughs off because that's, that's what they're supposed to do but the magic here is just that they were so white and i think the reason why there was so why they attracted so much attention was because they just still were, were so white at the end which to me i feel like is not so much an indication of how well they work which they did work really well clearly but also the fact that he never like you know dragged them across the ground and scraped them up that sort of thing he also, uh, there's a video that someone sent me of him going through a giant puddle. I think it was in Grusson, which is sort of somewhat near the end of the race. And uh, basically washing them off accidentally. Like they kind of came into this sector a, a pretty muddy and then came out of that sector like stark white again. So a little little mid-race cleaning. I wonder if he did that on purpose. Like, oh, my, sho <laughs> my, my, sho my shoes look dirty. I like white shoes. I'm going to ride through this puddle. <laughs> it's a classy look. It's a classy look. All right, there you go. Mystery solved for everybody. And with that, thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with another episode of the Second Tips Podcast. Bye, everybody. Uh, for everyone out there who might be wondering where this week's episode of Nerd Alert is, I blame Kaylee and Ronan because they were supposed to record an episode at Roubaix and then ran out of time. So seeing as how I am leaving for Sea Otter tomorrow morning, I unfortunately do not have time to record a Nerd Alert episode before I go. So unfortunately, you will all have to wait another few days for another episode. But thanks for your patience. Sorry, everybody. We're